the very first episode of Monster Kid Radio in 2020, we opened up the show with a song from the surf band Wood Cadillacs. They're based out of Londrina, Brazil. Well, I wanted to end 2020 with another song from the band. Now, the album is just called Wood Surfers. It's the name of the band. You can check them out at woodsurfersbrazil.bandcamp.com. This song is called wood cadillacs check them out let them know that monster kid radio sent you when you're done listening to this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear it is monster kid radio i am your writer host producer Derek m cook and you are in store for a treat because we're doing something a little different this week on monster kid radio we are talking about a movie that is normally outside of the years the range of films that we talk about here on the show we're going slightly outside the monster kid radio wheelhouse clubhouse whatever you want to call it we're talking about a film from 19 i think it's 1980 yeah 1980 it's the shining directed by stanley kubrick yes the film that is based on a stephen king novel now of course i'm not talking about the movie here by myself i've got a guest on board somebody who really really enjoys watching this movie and more importantly i think really enjoys discussing this movie we are welcoming back to the show paul mccomas he's an author a performer an activist a musician and like i said he's a huge fan of the movie the shining so we're going to talk about that now of course we can't have an episode of monster kid radio without kenny's look at famous monsters of Filmland, and it turns out the shining was actually covered by that magazine, which I guess really shouldn't surprise me. Famous Monsters of Filmland did last, at least the traditional or the original FM lasted until the mid-80s at least, right? So yeah, it would have covered The Shining. I'm real curious to see, or in this case here, how the magazine treated that film. And we've got to get our Ultra on. We've got Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review here on the show as well there's a lot of business to get to as well here on the show i'm going to go ahead and address some of it right now you guys and gals know that i've got a patreon we've got a patreon campaign it's one of the things that we use to help support the show and i've been incredibly lucky and incredibly fortunate to have so many of you jump on board as a patron over at patreon.com slash monster kid radio Traditionally, over the years, and I think I've talked about this before, I do sometimes have a difficult time meeting all the commitments that I have when it comes to hitting all the goals and the rewards for all the patrons. And it's happened again. This time, it's not necessarily my fault. It's just that we had a problem with Dropbox. For whatever reason, the website Dropbox and I were having some difficulty. They shut down my ability to share files. And that's what I was using to distribute some of the files that go to some of the patrons. Well, that has been corrected, and probably before the next episode, those of you who are owed Monster Kid bingo cards for the past two months will get your bingo cards. So please sit tight. You're going to get them. They're on the way. I've cleared everything up with Dropbox. By next week, you'll have the bingo cards. Also, Sometime in January, I will be making some changes again to the Patreon campaign. I really, really want to start taking advantage of the Discord server that we have. I actually think what we might end up doing is opening up the Discord for some private movie parties where I will show a movie 
in Discord for those of you who have been invited to the Discord channel. Because of this, we may change where the Discord channel reward ends up. But again, sit tight, stay tuned. We'll have the updated Patreon campaign probably within a week. I also want to start incorporating things with the Monster Kid Movie Club and the Monster Kid Astronomy Club into the Patreon just to kind of see what we can do about maybe supporting that as well. As you guys and gals know, on a personal front, I am unemployed. I am taking some gigs here and there, but it's certainly not enough to enable me to keep the show going while looking for another job, while trying to figure out where I'm going to live, because I do need to start thinking about moving within the next few months. So I'm really going to be pushing the Patreon. I just don't want to come across as pay me, pay me, pay me. You know what I mean? Because here's the thing. Monster Kid Radio is not going anywhere. It's not changing in any way, shape, or form. MKR is here to stay. I know I sometimes roll my eyes loud enough for you guys and gals to hear it on the microphone whenever somebody says, here's the 500 more, but really, here's the 500 more episodes of Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio, man, it's not going anywhere. I'm a monster kid for life, yo. I don't know what that was, but it's true. I love what I do here, and I love the community that you guys and gals have enabled me to be part of. Thank you so much. Got a little bit more to go over in terms of things that are happening in the Monster Kid community, the classic horror community, and what's happening here on the show. But I don't want to waste any more time. I really want to get into some of the cool segments we've got. I think we're going to kick this off with Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. So we'll get to that right after this. Discover Planet of the Apes. A civilization where humans run wild in the jungles and the superior beings are apes. Tribunal has placed you in my custody for final disposition. Do you realize what that means? No. Emasculation to begin with. An experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. And a kind of living death. King Kong! The horror picture of all time. Don't let him get me! A beautiful girl torn from the arms of her lover by a jungle beast. King Kong! See a battle between prehistoric monsters on an island time forgot. A nightmare jungle creature from the primeval past stalking midnight streets. My baby! It's got my baby! See the thrill classic of all time. The biggest gorilla picture ever made in motion picture history. The jungle epic that can never be duplicated. See RKO's original... King Kong. King Kong! King Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. If you find this bamboo flower and a rainbow's egg, it'll grant you any wish you desire. Or will it? 
That's the question at the heart of Ultra Q's 18th episode entitled The Rainbow's Egg, which premiered May 1, 1966. Things get off to a smashing start when a truck hauling enriched uranium is destroyed on a mountain pass by a subterranean monster firing an energy beam from its mouth. The truck is immolated, but the uranium capsule tumbles down a crevice and the drivers are likewise ejected from the vehicle. Yuriko, June, and Ipe survey the area by helicopter, spotting the wreckage and surviving crew. In the hospital, they recount their terrifying tale of being menaced by a giant creature whose appearance was presaged by a golden rainbow in the sky. The description reminds June of a creature named Pagos, whose hunger for uranium had led it to attack a Chinese atomic facility. Pagos had evidently re-emerged in Japan, threatening not only a newly constructed nuclear plant, but also a group of energetic children who have discovered the uranium capsule and have their own plans for its use. The special effects in The Rainbow's Egg are particularly dazzling, from the gripping pre-credit sequence in which Pagos emerges from the mountainside to his explosive raid on the power plant, not to mention the numerous matte paintings that give it a truly cinematic quality. Kaiju fans will be interested to know that Pagos shares a body with Baragon from Frankenstein Conquers the World. That movie had come out the previous year, and the Pagos costume was inhabited by none other than stuntman and suit actor Haruo Nakajima, the man who had brought Godzilla, Rodan, Mothra, and the aforementioned Baragon to life, among many other monster suit and on-screen credits. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. I am so thankful that we've got Mark Matsky kicking in these segments. This is the 18th installment of the Beta Capsule Review. He has not missed a week. Of course, if he ever needed to, Mark, it's not a problem. You've been knocking it out of the park, man. I love having you here, but don't burn yourself out, brother. There's a lot of Ultraman and Ultra Q to get through. I had no idea that Pagos was played by Nakajima. How cool is that? And now I'm wondering if I need to go back and rewatch that Ultra Q. I need to go back. Like, I get to go back and rewatch Ultra Q. We are going to be doing some more kaiju in the future on MKR. Stay tuned for that. And you know what? I'm just going to tell you now. Here in a couple of weeks at the Monster Kid Movie Club, not this Saturday, but next Saturday, we're doing a bunch of kaiju movies. Probably a lot of Gamera because a lot of that's in the public domain. But we're going to be doing a lot of kaiju in about a week and a half on the Monster Kid Movie Club Twitch channel. So stay tuned for that. Mark, once again, thank you so much for everything that you've done for Monster Kid Radio in 2020. And have a happy new year, my friend. Here are the seven wonders of the world rolled into one fantastic adventure. Frankenstein, born again to rule in terror, a monster unleashed to conquer all who stand in his destructive path. Frankenstein conquers the world. Spreading panic as millions flee his vengeance. Frankenstein towering over cities, defying the force of armies, the might of navies, and the fury of jets. Frankenstein, a name never equaled in the annals of terror. Frankenstein conquers the world. Stars Nick Adams as the American scientist versus Frankenstein, incarnate 
With the strength of a thousand men, a phenomenon such as never seen before, see Frankenstein Conquers the World, astounding on the giant screen, in color scope from American International Pictures. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. You know, it just occurred to me that I sound a little stuffed up or sick. No, I've just got some bad allergies. This is the feedback discussion or the allergy discussion for some reason or other. We've got some feedback from some listeners. I have the monster in the machine waiting in the wings to read this first email from Sean. Here in Kentucky, we have a store called Dollar Tree where everything is a buck. Sometimes they carry DVDs and Blu-rays, but it's very hit or miss. I found the Munster's scary little Christmas there for a dollar. Congrats on 500 episodes and all the entertainment you have gave me and the other monster kids especially in this weird year we all been through. Keep up the good work and thanks. Sean. Yeah, I honestly would not pay more than a buck or two for my own copy of The Monster's Scary Little Christmas. Uh, I know Scott enjoyed it a lot more than I did, and there are some moments that I enjoyed, but yeah, it just is not a patch on the original at all. But... It was a lot of fun to talk about it with Scott because it was really fun to revisit that Christmas monster movie tradition that we started here on Monster Kid Radio way back in the day, like six years ago. <laughs> Man, I know I said at the top of the show that I have no intention of stopping, but boy, it really does feel like I've been doing this for a while too on top of that. So, Sean, I really appreciate you being here for me when I talk about these monster movies on the podcast. I love doing it. Like I said, I don't think I'm going to be stopping anytime soon. So thanks for writing in. Okay, we had another comment come in. This one actually came through Facebook Messenger from our old friend, Terry, from That's Terry Riffic. I bought it this year from a bargain bin. It started out okay, but I realized why it was panned by critics. Like many sequels, especially those missing the original cast, this should have been left on the cutting room floor. It is just really hard to recapture the magic and chemistry of the original crew but I do appreciate an effort to offer some new holiday terror traditions to the Christmas holiday. Terry from That's Terry Effect. Okay, look, I'm not playing emails and feedback in order to gang up on the monster scary little Christmas, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I said, that's Terry Riffick. That's Terry Riffick is the Facebook page that you can go to to get your hands on some really cool 
monster and pop culture fabric related shirts, scarves, masks, bags, all sorts of cool stuff. I've got a handful of her products here in my home right now. I've got an apron, I've got two masks, and I wear these masks out all the time. In fact, every time I wear one of these masks when I go out, okay, I say all the time, I'm not really going out all the time, but whenever I wear any of these masks, I do get comments, I do get compliments about them. So I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes if there already isn't one to That's Terry Ific on Facebook. But you can just look up That's Terry Ific yourself and check out her wares. Terry is awesome. If you ever have a chance to see her at a convention, if we ever have conventions again, you got to spend some time with her. She's going to fill you with warm fuzzies. I don't know what that means. I'm going to wrap up here. The feedback is over. Monsters in the Machine, please let the people know how they can get a hold of us. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's monsterkidradio at gmail.com. This, you've got to see. The Munsters at Marineland. Yes, that riotous family of goofy ghouls invites you to join them on an unforgettable visit to the famous Marineland of the Pacific. You can help the Munsters pick out a pet for Eddie. Of course, Herman, Grandpa, and Lily insist on something lovable, like a shark, a barracuda, or an octopus. See all the wonders of this fabulous oceanarium, and watch the Munsters have a whale of a good time at Marineland Carnival. The new Christie Minstrels will be there, too, Easter Sunday, April 18th, on most of these CBS television network stations. Hello, we're the Greasy Gills, and you're listening to Monster Kid Radio. Hello there, Monster Kid Radio heads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's movie, The Shining, was surprisingly covered in issue 167 from September of 1980. The coverage started on the backside of the Star Wars-themed cover with a color picture of Jack Nicholson at the famous bathroom door. Here is the punny caption. Jack Nicholson, looking like he ought to be typecast as Jack-o'-lantern in Son of Halloween, gives a real mean performance, and we do mean as the mild man turned madman in The Shining. In a shining portrayal of a human being reduced to inhuman acts against his wife and child by a house possessed, Nicholson looks like Jack the Knife reincarnated. If you're underage and have been pining to find out about The Shining, you'll find the answer in this chill-packed issue. The article covers four pages and includes six photos. Editor Forey Ackerman started the report with this paragraph. If you haven't died of curiosity yet, wondering what The Shining is all about, gather around, open your ears, calm your fears, and your fearless editor will tell you about it. Because, like The Exorcist, until you're 18, you aren't going to be allowed to see it. Never mind, patience, and someday you'll catch up with it on television. And when you do, I hope you understand it better than I did. I promise to tell you all about it, leaving out the R-rated parts, of course. 
I'll try my best, but I have to admit I didn't get it. And you can't blame it on creeping senility because my young assistant, who's just exactly one-third my age, didn't understand it either. Brian the Brain drew a blank, just like I did on the final frame. A brief synopsis follows and concludes with this critique of the last shot. A series of cuts coming closer and closer to a photo on the wall in the lodge showing a dance ball that took place there in 1921. Jack is in the picture. Meaning? Maybe it's explained in the book. No, wait. Someone familiar with the book told me the scene isn't in it. Something added by the director. Is it possible Stanley Kubrick has done it again? Giving us a I leave the interpretation up to you ending a la Space Odyssey? The first reader who can offer the editor a satisfactory explanation will receive a two-week vacation, all expenses paid, in the Overlook Lodge, if we can find it, during the off-your-rocker season, in the dead of winter. The article ends with this praise of one of the supporting players. A word about supporting actor Joe Turkle. He played Lloyd, the special bartender, and he's superb. Cool, efficient, yet subtly foreboding. He doesn't do anything, but you sense he might. That he's an emissary of evil, or perhaps the devil in disguise. Anyway, it's the kind of performance that overnight elevates someone who's been around for years to a new stature among his peers. Turkle would certainly be an asset to future films of fantasy and horror. The dislike author Stephen King had for this adaption of his novel is well known. We get a little preview of the controversy in an interview with Mr. King found in issue 162 from April of 1980, which celebrated the release of the TV movie Salem's Lot. Here is part of that interview. Moving on to The Shining, what led you to your writing that? Weren't you on vacation in Colorado when you were inspired by a hotel there similar to the Overlook in the novel? The hotel was there, the Hotel Stanley, and it's upcountry near the Rocky Mountain State Park. Somebody told us we had to go stay there, you know, Americana, part of Western history. Johnny Ringo shot down there and all this other stuff. And finally, my wife and I did go up to the hotel. It was the last day of the season. The hotel was totally empty except for us. We were the only guests, and yet all the service help was there. They were there by contract until the last day. And the band was there, playing in the deserted dining room with the chairs turned up on their tables, except for ours. It was very eerie. And I had an idea for a long time to write a book about a kid who was sort of a psychic receptor. It just seemed to all fall together. What is the current status of the film? As far as I know, Kubrick is editing it. Warners is giving a release date to their exhibitors and distributors of May 23rd. I don't know, and they don't know. And believe me, nobody knows but Stanley Kubrick. And he won't talk. When he's ready, we'll all know it. So you haven't seen any of the film yet, or know what any of it is like? Well, yeah, I've talked to Stanley on several occasions, and I've seen a lot of stills and transparencies. I would have seen Rush's the day that I was there on the set, but they'd sent them all back to London before I arrived. Visually, it's stunning. You can see that from the big mural-sized pictures that they have, the blow-ups of the hotel, and the pictures from the shooting. I think that it's going to be all right. I know from looking at the call sheets that go back two or three months when I was there that it follows the book very closely. What changes has Kubrick made? Did he write the screenplay himself? With a little help from a lady named Diane Johnson. She's written novels of her own and writes a lot of literary criticism. 
As far as what changes he made, I'm sure that the movie will seem a lot different from the book, if only because it's seen through the eyes of Stanley Kubrick, rather than the eyes of Stephen King. We're different people, and we've probably got different perspectives on that whole story. But as far as actual changes, I only know that for sure that the hedge animals are out and he substituted a hedge maze. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Okay, one, I would totally watch a movie starring 1980s Jack Nicholson called Son of Halloween. Two, I can't help but wonder if Stanley Kubrick and company intentionally sent the rushes away when Stephen King came to visit that one day on set. Just curious, just wondering, either that or they just told him the rushes were gone. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, I, I, I wonder. I, I really, really wonder. Oh, boy. It does sound like Stephen King was on board with the adaptation at that point. Although there were a few things, like Kenny said, that underneath the surface, maybe not. Anyway, I want to say thank you to Kenny for all the hard work he's been doing with the Famous Monsters of Filmland segment. Again, it means so much to have all these contributions coming in to the show. I think it enriches the show in a way that, well, I couldn't do on my own. So, Kenny, thank you for all of your hard work. And like I told Mark, you too have a happy new year, my friend. creative genius of Roger Corman, who brought to the screen Edgar Allan Poe's most shocking horror tales, comes the ultimate in blood-chilling screen experiences, The Terror, starring the incomparable Boris Karloff. You think I'm mad, don't you? In the role he was born to play, The Terror, bedeviled by his own mad, all-consuming passions. With my own hands, I killed her. The Terror. His evil, mystic powers go beyond man's wildest imaginings. If he resists, kill him. American International presents The Terror, starring Boris Karloff, dean of all horror demons, in this, his most demanding terrorization. The Terror, a film group production in color and vestoscope. Yorga, Yorga. Count Yorga returns. Here is a vampire picture you can really get your teeth into. The return of Count Yorga. A vampire lover returns from the dead to seek a mate from the living. One never knows when he might encounter some of the more unusual truths that exist in this world. See the return of Count Yorga in color rated GP. Let's talk about some things that are coming up here at Monster Kid Radio and Monster Kid Radio adjacent things like the Monster Kid Movie Club. First of all, in next week's episode of Monster Kid Radio, you can expect to have Steve Turk come back to the show to talk about the movie The Snow Creature from 1954. So that'll be coming up next week on episode number 505. Before now and then, though, we've got two streaming events that I want to tell you about. First of all, on Saturday at the Monster Kid Movie Club, where we start showing movies at noon on Saturday, that's Pacific time, 
pre-show starts at 11. But we start showing movies at noon, and it goes for at least eight hours. And it's a Lugosi day this Saturday. So we're going to be showing a lot of Bela Lugosi films. So I'd like to invite you to come by and join us for the movies. There is a live chat. The movies are free. You just head over to the Monster Kid Radio Twitch channel. You can find it at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio or go straight to monsterkidmovie.club. This is where it's happening. It's totally free, like I said, and you are encouraged to talk during the films. Like I said, it's a free chat. It's live. And we have a pretty good crowd over there. I'd like to grow that audience a little bit more because the more the merrier. You know what I mean? So please feel free to join us this Saturday for Lugosi Day. I can tell you we're going to be showing movies like Bowery at Midnight and uh, other things. Pay attention to the Monster Kid Movie Club Facebook page for further details when I make them available. Now, that happens on Saturday. It's a huge chunk of movies. On Tuesday, we show a couple of flicks at the same place on Twitch. It's the Monster Kid Astronomy Club. We call it that because we do science fiction movies. And next Tuesday, we're going to be showing The Doomsday Machine from 1972, although it was shot in the 60s, and The Day the Sky Exploded from 1958. We also show episodes of The Invisible Man, which is a BBC television show from the 50s or 60s? Yeah, I think 60s. And there's always a at least 30-minute chat about Star Trek at the very end of the stream. This is something that, again, we have a live chat going, and the Star Trek 30 is what we call it. We talk about Star Trek, and we engage with people in the chat. I try to bring somebody on to talk about Star Trek. It's a lot of fun. I have so much fun doing that as well. My favorite part of both of these streams is when I get to talk directly to you guys and gals. It's not just movies. I'm there with you chatting it up, having a good time watching these movies with you. Now, the Astronomy Club, that starts at 4 o'clock Pacific, with a pre-show starting around 3.30. Again, we have a Facebook page for this as well. Just look up the Monster Kid Astronomy Club on Facebook, and that's where you'll find out what the schedule is and information about future screenings. Speaking of future screenings, I want to go back to the Monster Kid Movie Club, the thing that meets on Saturday. Like I said earlier in this episode, we're doing a Kaiju Day on January 9th, where we're going to be showing a bunch of Kaiju films, probably a lot of Gamera and anything else that I might be able to dig up and get permission to show on the stream. I know I also talked about this a little bit at the top of the show. I want to mention it again here. We're going to be redoing the Patreon reward levels, so... Keep your eyes open for that because I'm going to be doing a monthly private screening through Discord. And in order to be involved in that, you know, I have to put it at a particular reward level on the Patreon campaign. So stay tuned for that information as well. Trying to think of anything else coming up for Monster Kid Radio over the next few months. And really, it's just a lot of business as usual doing the show as we do every week here at Monster Kid Radio. I have so much fun talking about these movies with you guys and gals. I can't imagine a week going by where I don't get to do an episode of MKR. And there have been some concerns raised when I talk about other projects that I'm working on, like my role-playing game stuff or anything that I'm doing on YouTube or anything else like that. Don't worry. MKR is not going anywhere. It's my first love. It's my first love. But don't tell the monsters in the machine that. They might let it get to their head. Speaking of the monsters in the machine... Uh, the service that I got them from will start charging me for their service. We may not have them around much longer. I'm trying to work out a deal, but yeah, I just wanted to let you know about that potential change coming up. 
Also, did you know it's time to start making suggestions for the Rondo Hat and Classic Horror Awards? I feel like this just kind of happened. I wasn't really ready for it to happen yet, but apparently it's time to start making suggestions for the ballot for the next round of the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. Now, the Rondo Hattons honor the best in classic horror, literature, scholarship, movies, documentaries, podcasts, articles, all of that. Plus, they always announce at least one, normally two, if not more, inductees into the Monster Kid Hall of Fame. And I have a feeling they're going to be doing some other special things this year as well. There is a thread that was started over at the Classic Horror Film Board by the man behind the Rondos himself, David Colton. If you head over there, you'll see that right there, up top, front and center, wanted suggestions for the, yes, 19th annual Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. I'm going to make sure there's a link in the show notes, but I've also created a tiny URL link. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash Rondo Suggest, now Rondo is R-O-N-D-O and then the word suggest, but it all together is one word, tinyurl.com slash Rondo Suggest, you'll be taken there. Now you do need to set up an account with the Classic Horror Film Board where they host the forums there, which is through Tapatalk. But it's free, it's real easy to do, and I highly encourage you to do so. Now I've already seen a couple of our friends get mentioned in the thread here at the Classic Horror Film Board. Keep in mind, this is not the official ballot. This is strictly to help David and his team put together the ballot for the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. I don't see a deadline here, but obviously the sooner, the better, and the more noise you make about something, the more likely you're going to see something get nominated, I think. I think that's how it works. I'm not really sure exactly how it works, but I know that David takes all of this into consideration when building the ballot. This is the big one. This is the award that us Monster Kids look forward to every year. Monster Kid Radio has been on the ballot repeatedly over the years. We won once, I'll be honest, I wouldn't mind winning again, but I can't do that unless somebody puts me on the ballot. And this is probably the worst passive-aggressive way of hinting, please put me on the ballot. But the only way to do that, like I said, is to hop on over there and make a suggestion in the thread at the Classic Horror Film Board. Again, that's tinyurl.com slash Rondo Suggest. This is the voice of a woman dreaming of her lover. Please, darling, let me close. I love you so much. And this, a woman having a nightmare. Let me out! What are dreams? What do they mean? When you dream, you wander into another world where everything is strange and terrifying. When you dream, you too become a Nightwalker. The Nightwalker brings Robert Taylor and Barbara Stanwyck together again in the film Shocker of the Year. Yes, I do have a lover. Tell me his name. I wish to God I could, but he's only a dream. And now, a warning from producer William Castle. Our new picture, The Nightwalker, may force you to dream of things you're ashamed to admit. If you can't stand your own dreams, don't see The Nightwalker. The Nightwalker. Dracula has risen from the grave. Boy, does he give a hickey. Charlton Heston is the Omega Man. The Omega Man. More than fantasy. Maybe the future. Rated GP. This is Count Vlad. 
but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky von Helsing. Tonight, an ABC premiere presentation. Jack Nicholson. Shelley Juval. The ultimate exercise in terror. Anybody here? A masterpiece of modern horror. The Shining. Here's Johnny! Listeners, I'd like to publicly thank this week's guest for all of his patience and incredible understanding, because this is not the first time we've tried to record this conversation. In fact, we even had some tech issues. Okay, I had some tech issues earlier today trying to get this done, but Paul McComas has been so forgiving and generous with his time. I'd like to thank him and welcome him to Monster Kid Radio. How's it going, Paul? Oh, I have a well of forgiveness and graciousness toward you, Derek, which will never be emptied, at least not in this lifetime. I mean, come on. And by the way, I know what problems are and what they aren't. And uh, us doing this interview once before and it not working out on the tech level, and so we have to do it again, that is not a problem. Being in a head-on car crash and spending 93 days in a hospital, as I did uh, six years ago, that is a problem. So... It's all relative, and besides which, I know that your studio uh, was built over an ancient Indian burial ground, so of course something went wrong, and, and uh, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully the curse has been adequately sated, and we will be okay now. I, I did have a young priest and an old priest come over, and uh, they did, did the appropriate things that, I don't know, I wasn't allowed in the room when they did it, but something now, was done, that, I think everything's fine. No, that would work if we were discussing The Exorcist, a much lesser film, by the way. Um, priests oh. aren't going to, aren't, priests, if I may, aren't going to do Jack ah. to, uh, <laughs> to help us with the shine. I see what it, you did there. Yeah, there's, yeah, right. There's no Satanism in this movie, and that's one of the things I like about it, because I'm not a big fan of uh, movies about the devil, because I kind of find the whole notion of Satan offensive. The, the dualism of, uh, you know, pure evil. And I think it's scapegoating if we if we blame Satan rather than saying, yeah, there's a hell of a lot of evil in humankind. And in the case of this movie, and in bad parents and uh, bad husbands, sociopaths and uh, alcoholics who haven't gotten and maintained the help that they need. Um, there's plenty of, of, you know, darkness without going into supernatural looking for it that said there is some supernatural happening in the shining yeah that we're going to be talking about here it's from 1980 it's a little outside of the wheelhouse for monster kid radio but it's a haunted house story at its core at least 
part of its core. Yeah. And I have really warmed up to this movie, despite the fact that it's set in the middle of winter. I have really warmed up to this movie uh, over the past year, in fact. So yeah. I'm excited to talk about it with who's, somebody who's been a lifelong fan. Yeah, I, I almost pleaded with you after an initial rejection or two to give it a shot, give it a second chance now that you had, you know, we, we come back to a movie and you come back to a different person than the person you saw it the first time. And that I'm not trying to uh, be critical or cast dispersions, but you undoubtedly came back as a much more mature and sophisticated person and consumer of media. You've done 500 plus episodes, right? Most good radio, and uh, so you're a you're a, a true blue media scholar at this point, and I think that helps with Kubrick, honestly, to to take it seriously and to look for all the different levels that make. I'm going to put true blue media scholar on my business card and resume from now on. I think. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> I mean, are, are those are really we all have the potential to be a media scholar because we've all consumed TV and movies and other pop cultures since, you know, as far back as we can remember. And all it then requires to kind of graduate into scholarship is, eh, how would I put it? The ability to look beyond the surface and the willingness to be open uh, to interpretations different from uh, your initial one and to see that they're not necessarily contradictory to one of them. Well, I, I have grown, and I, this movie has really grown on me. I have now watched it, I think, since our initial conversation another couple of times. Good. Uh, <laughs> it gets richer, doesn't it? It gets better. You know, yeah, as I dig into it, and, and I know part of it is me bringing something to the table that Stephen King and, and Stanley Kubrick probably didn't intend. Uh, Fine. But yeah. I think that that's the sign of a real work of art is when you start bringing your own stuff to it and, and finding more connections and, and things to really kind of latch on to and explore. And that's something that I'm really enjoying when I do this deep dive now with the shining, I've kind of had to do a deep dive because we had the tech issues, but I'm kind of grateful for that too, because it gave me another chance to re-explore some areas that, man, I want to go back and watch again. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, it, I, I thought the same thing. Well, I, I have to watch The Shining again. Is, is really, I get to watch The Shining again. Uh, last night for probably about the 35th time. Growing up in Milwaukee, I was, uh, what was I, 18. Took a date the, the night that it opened up in, in our city, and it blew me away. Um, I knew that I would be watching it again and again, and you know, first on VHS and, and now on the wonderful DVD set that has a separate disc of extras. This could be a very frustrating and, to my mind, not very illuminating interview if we were to focus on things like what was Kubrick trying to do here. And uh, I feel fortunate that one of the main things I learned in the master's program in film at Northwestern uh, was this theory of intentional fallacy, which has been liberating for me. And uh, essentially what it says is the author's, artist's, filmmaker's intention is ultimately irrelevant. I mean, you could turn it into a puzzle and an exercise of trying to figure out what they meant to do. Uh, but A, you will never figure that out conclusively, even if they, in interviews, have told you their intention. Uh, they may or may not be 
if they're honest about that, they are impacted by the refuse of their work and what colleagues said. But more importantly, who cares? Because here's the piece. The piece is always going to be bigger than the artist, at least if it's a good, if it's a successful piece. And that, that's where that documentary room 237 comes in, right? Yeah. There are seven and a half billion possible interpretations of this movie, um, one for each person on the planet. Room 237 is the documentary that came out a few years ago that brings a bunch of different uh, media scholars, analysts, critics, whatever, together who uh, have seemingly wild theories about the movie and, and what it means. And I'm just going to say that I don't see it the way they do, but that doesn't mean that they're seeing it wrong. We have to allow a piece of art to open up to different people in different ways. And if, if someone sees it, then it's there. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm still struggling a little bit with the whole space program. We didn't yeah. really land on the moon thing, but you know what? If it's, if it's valid for that person, <laughs> Who am I to kind of come in there? I I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I'm not even going to go to the question of uh, you know was Kubrick in, intentionally referencing that kind of stuff. My guess is no, but I, again, I don't care if that creates additional interest and intrigue for the guy who has that theory that the the moon landing was faked and Kubrick was fessing up to it symbolically. More power to them. I have my own interpretation of The Shining and. And uh, I kind of wish I'd been invited to be in room 237 because mine is, <laughs> I think, a lot more kind of accessible uh, and immediately apparent from the material. It's not as far flung. I'll tell you the one in 237 that did work for me was okay, uh, okay. The, the gal, I think was the only female um, scholar amongst the group, who said, there's sex running throughout this thing, even though we have a not very connected couple with real trouble brewing beneath the surface, there are a lot of uh, kind of Freudian uh, indications and symbols and elements, components, metaphors uh, for sex. And that's something they missed, by the way, in Dr. Sleep. Uh, not a great movie. I, the sequel to The Shining that came out last year, I was delighted that it came out. And what I've been saying now, having seen it like two and a quarter times, <laughs> is... A, everyone who loves the movie The Shining must see this because uh, it's just it's fascinating. And B, you will invariably be disappointed by it. It's, it's not Stanley Kubrick. It's a pale imitation. But if you love the original, you've got some good lookalike actors at the beginning and especially during the last act, which is back at the Overlook. Uh, anyway, I can't remember why I stumbled into talking about Dr. Sleep from 237. <laughs> hey, hey, you know, that's what happens when a couple of monster kids start talking about this stuff, though. We kind of just kind of go all over the place. And yeah, hey, you know what? I did watch Dr. Sleep since the last time we spoke. Yeah. And yeah. I agree with you. It, it doesn't it doesn't really hold up to the shining. I understand what they were trying to do with it. But, you know, that's yeah. probably a whole different kind of conversation to have about it. A different movie in a different episode. Right. And whatever they were trying, it doesn't matter. Does the piece work? And I say in, in parts, uh, but for me, it, it, it doesn't work more than it works. Yeah. I mean, I like Ewan McGregor a lot as an actor. Yep. Yep. Um, and I thought he did an adequate job, but yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, yep. But as far as like Room 237, definitely interesting to watch and consider some of these other ideas that some of these people have. I don't buy any of them 100%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think that was the intention, if you're going to try to figure out what the intention was. Uh, in terms of what the movie itself is, though, The Shining, I think, the more I think about it, the more I come away from the, the longer I'm, I'm with it, the more I really, really appreciate what it is. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think I said this the first time we tried to record and in conversation, I didn't like it the first time. I was like, oh, man, I just felt like Kubrick was kind of going through the motions. He had a checklist of what makes a good horror movie. Well, I've got to have this, this and this. And it was like he was following a recipe. And I, I thought it was pretty transparent and, and very kind of on the nose, not very deep. But as I kept watching it, I, I got to see beyond that. And Yeah, when you were young, you weren't very deep. That was the problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> but see, I think that instead of going through a checklist, he's going through a subversion list. Because especially if we think of this film in the context of the time. So Kubrick was offered The Exorcist. He was also offered Exorcist Two: The Heretic. Um, they well, would have made that movie a lot better. <laughs> yeah, they both would have been very different movies. And I think he was wise to wait for the right source material. I'm not particularly a fan of Stephen King's writing. I think he often comes up with good premises, and uh, Carrie, I think, is his masterpiece, both in the writing and in the premise. And Kubrick uh, found in The Shining certain elements that were going to allow him to make the kind of horror movie he wanted. This is in the midst of the slasher film craze. Note that there is exactly one on-screen murder in this two-hour and 20-minute film. That's the opposite of a body count movie. Note that the haunted house is not a creepy old manor, but a really gorgeous, you know, resort lodge. Very little of this movie takes place in shadow, which from Jacques Tourneur uh, on, in fact, going back before him to some of the silent horror is de rigueur, but things are brightly lit and uh, you've got the, the gold room and things are beautiful and brightly lit which again is the opposite of your expectation. Uh, I would even say that our capacity to view this film as not being about the supernatural, ultimately, is another subversion of the formula. And it's one of the reasons why Dr. Sleep doesn't work for me, because it's very clearly about the supernatural, whereas there's this wonderful ambiguity to The Shining where I will maintain that absolutely everything in that film can be explained uh, rationally. That some of the stuff falls into the surrealism of the unconscious and the surrealism of dreams. But what I'm saying is I could make an argument for there being no uh, literal supernatural component to the film or for what is supernatural being an outgrowth of uh, psycho-spiritual elements. The character. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, if you look at this a particular way, you can see that this is just Jack Nicholson's character, Jack Torrance, slipping deeper and deeper into his alcoholism and other uh, issues. There, there's nothing spooky happening here at all there's, uh, in terms of like the ghosts and supernatural and all that. It could all just be him having the absolute worst day of his, his life. Uh, no. as, well, and, and everybody else's too, but. Yeah, You know, Kubrick and Diane Johnson, his co-writer, co-adapter, 
they were studying and exploring and reading into a lot of uh, Jung and mythology archetypes, uh, the shadow side to people. And uh, this was what interested them far more than, than the metaphysical. We know that Jack, early in the film, we know that he has dislocated his, his son, young son's, or his young son's arm at, at one point. And we know that he has a drinking problem, but is now on the wagon. We can observe and see that there's very little affection coming from him toward his wife, more toward his son. And something we get from Wendy, I think, is a portrait of a woman who loves her man more than he loves her. I think Shelley Duvall does a great job because she doesn't play dumb, but she plays vulnerable very well. And, and you can just tell uh, in all of her scenes, this is someone who um, a predator or a not very nice person would probably select someone who could be walked on, someone who could function as a door. And he's terrible to her. Kubrick was terrible to Shelley Duvall. Uh, oh, yeah. On set uh, to help her. And she really resented it at the time. You can see it in, in Kubrick's daughter's uh, on set, this mini doc. But then she came out of it saying, I learned more on that set from that director than all the other films I've done combined. I can't quibble with the results, even if it seems on the face of it like he was a real jerk to her. Borderline abusive, if, if not flat out, but yeah. it does give her the ability to give us a performance that is is almost like a permanent look of shell shock and just exhaustion on her face the entire time, which I would imagine would be how somebody would feel in that situation. Yeah. You love your man so much, yet he did this terrible thing to your son and wow, just it's pretty stunning. She believes as long as she possibly can, she puts her hope and her faith in him and in things getting better. And so if we look at it as a movie that has the supernatural element, which you know appears to certainly and the crucial scene that proves that, quote-unquote proves, is where Jack is stuck in the, the storage uh, locker or freezer room and is bargaining with the off-screen ghost of uh, Delbert Brady to let him out so that he can discipline his family. And then we hear the unlocked door, but we don't see who unlocks it. And my initial assumption, and I think most people's is, Grady is a ghost who can actually manifest physically and do something like unlock the door. But there are two other possibilities. One is Danny, and one, the way I see it, is Wendy. Because there is what used to be called self-defeating personality disorder. And, and the tendency for some people uh, and some uh, abuse uh, victims, and I'm not calling them survivors because sometimes they don't, to go ahead and invite and enable the abuse because they don't know any other way or because they've been so fully dominated by the abuser. And that's the way I see the movie now is that he's having his imaginary conversation with Grady, but the part of her that is not ready to save herself comes in and unlocks that is something, that is a particular scene that I paid a lot of attention to actually the last time I watched it, uh, just to see if there's anything else that I'm missing. Yeah, we know that 
we don't see who opened the door, but are there any clues, any cues left on screen to kind of indicate maybe it was Shelley Duvall's character that let him out? Maybe, it, you know, whatever. I, I still didn't see it. And I think that makes that scene even that much more rich. <laughs> because It does. And then we have to ask ourselves, what if it's Danny? Why would he be doing that? Oh, you know, um, is that's he, something that, I hadn't considered. Yeah. Is it because he's his father's son? Um, something that is played with in Dr. Sleep. Uh, and I understand you're looking for indicators. And mm-hmm. what I'll say is that I don't think the movie's a puzzle to be solved. I think it's a dream to let wash over you in the same way that some of David Lynch's, most of David Lynch's work is. And he's hit or miss for me. I really love Twin Peaks, including the reboot of Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive. Some of the other stuff has left me cold. But if we just embrace the surrealistic elements of The Shining and the fact that a lot of it is coming out of and dealing with the unconscious mind, you know, the unconscious doesn't create or solve puzzles. It just dredges up the dark stuff, uh, you know, from, from deep within us and puts it out there in dreams for us to experience. And we can talk about dream analysis and, you know, what did this dream mean and so forth. You'll never get a hard and fast for certain meaning to a dream. And I would say the same thing about a movie like this uh, that is in so many ways dreamlike, starting with the steady cam use and the, and the constant moving camera uh, that, that, that sweeps us away on a purely visual uh, and, and uh, visceral level. And you talked a little bit about that earlier, too, that this subverts a lot of the traditional haunted house and tropes. horror tropes and, and, and slasher tropes. Yeah. Murder, murder movie tropes. Yeah. 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 It is such a big set and brightly lit and and beautiful. I mean, in the way Kubrick lets that camera kind of glide through everything and take everything in there, there's nothing hiding in the shadows because there That's are no right. shadows. That's right. Yet it's still terrifying. Yeah, the only time you really get shadows that leaps to mind for me is at the end in the hedge maze. And there are some shots of Jack yeah. like running, limping to the hedge maze where he's backlit and kind of in shadow. But uh, what we do have in the hedge maze and then in the uh, cam following Danny earlier in the film on his big wheel, the sequences echo each other because they're both mazes. They're both labyrinths. And I think that the one scholar in room 237 who talked about the Minotaur and the maze was on to something, not necessarily in terms of that skiing poster that she points to on the wall, but the notion that here we have a maze and uh, there is uh, a dark presence associated with the maze. And here that would be what the overlook itself or Jack Torrance. And are those things one and the same? There's that last shot. Spoiler, you know, that suggests, um, as some of the dialogue earlier does, you're the caretaker, you've always been the caretaker, you've always been here. You know what I'm finding, Derek, is that it's really hard to talk about one aspect or element of this movie without wandering into another and then in another. And and that to me suggests that uh, solvable puzzle or not, and I say it's not, it's incredibly well integrated by Kubrick and by his team. It's cohesive. Yeah, I think that that speaks to the, the, you talked about the maze elements. There's a couple of maze elements, and that kind of speaks to to that element of the film. Is that as we start talking about 
what happened in the freezer or what happened with the big wheel. We just kind of start going off on these other paths, which is what a maze is. And that's that's really what this movie, I think, if you boiled it down to something, it, it is a, a maze of a mm-hmm. movie that you're maybe not meant yeah. to figure out. Like I, I mean, I've never escaped the maze of that movie. Uh, if I had, I wouldn't constantly <laughs> be going back to it. It is a maze of a movie that ultimately leaves us like Frozen Jack at the end, uh, more so than like Danny, you know, because I'm I'm still in it. And uh, it doesn't necessarily have a solution. I think it gets more complex in a way the deeper you get into it. And, you know, it, it, because it's a great piece of art, it keeps changing such that, and I've said this about other movies over the course of the pandemic and quarantine, if you watch The Shining now with its theme of cabin fever, and uh, people losing their patience with each other, losing their temper with each other, uh, being pushed together so much by the elements, whether those elements are a blizzard or a plague, uh, they're natural occurrences that are kind of forcing the issue and and bringing out uh, not necessarily the best in people. So, you know, I watched it last night while... Snow was coming down here in Evanston, Illinois, and and it was just perfect. Have you ever gone and watched it the way it was uh, suggested or talked about in Room 237, where you have it kind of playing backwards on top, you know, next to it, to kind of watching it forward no. and backwards at the same time? No. Have you ever done Only, that? Uh, kind all of... I've seen are the sequences that are excerpted in 237, and you sure yeah. do end up with a lot of interesting double exposures and compare and contrast dichotomies and, and echoes. Um, and, you know, again, a lot of people out there would say, yeah, but uh, that's not what Kubrick was trying to do. And I'll say, okay, no, probably not. And I don't care because it's another way of looking at the film that creates additional interest. And I'd also make the argument that if you're operating so beautifully from your right brain unconscious mind, things are going to happen accidentally on purpose that, results simply from your full committed engagement in the material, in the theme, uh, in the characterizations, and so forth. And I think you get to take credit for those, as well as for the things that your left brain consciously plans. Arguably, it's an even greater achievement if you're not even trying, and it's just coming out because you're so into it. Yeah, these happy little accidents happen because... I mean, you're an artist, right? I mean, th- this is how your brain thinks. So, of course, you're going to set these things up that, whether intentional or not, they're going to line up and they're going to create these happy little moments, these little accidents that just tend to work. I ask about the playing it backwards and forwards together because since the last time we chatted for the lost recording, I was talking with a filmmaker friend of mine, Josh Kennedy, about the film. And he told me that as an experiment in one of their film classes at film school, they did that. And there were a couple of moments that were kind of interesting and I didn't, I haven't done it myself. I, I considering it, I, you know, I got the technology to do it. So I'm thinking about doing it just to see what yeah. I pick up on, but yeah, I wouldn't know how I wouldn't yeah, know. I how. think I'm, it's I'm, interesting. I lack the tech know how to do it, but um, I was interested in the person who did that and some of the snippets that they showed. Uh, what you're getting, sure. even watching it regularly, just forwards, is some very long dissolve. This was pointed out in 237. That I think people uh, don't consciously notice when they're watching, but I think it does a number on them unconsciously. And the slow dissolve uh, creates these moments where there are 
two scenes um, on screen at the same time briefly, and then you can look at those elements uh, in comparison and in opposition to each other. And again, I'm not even going to address intentionality because it works. When it comes to Kubrick, the man was a master filmmaker. Mm-hmm. One of the best. He brought everything to bear here, and, and he's made some other amazing films mm-hmm. over the years. Yep. Uh, you know, I I know when we talk about the master works of Kubrick, Spartacus doesn't come up a lot, but I love Spartacus. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of my favorite Kubrick films, and yep. of course, 2001, and, and a number of other projects. Uh, Full Metal Jacket, Dr. Strangelove, yeah. I mean, I enjoy The Shining um, the most uh, out of all of this work. That's what I was going to ask you, if this was his fav- your favorite Kubrick. It is. I mean, I admire the rest, and, and especially 2001, I think, that was so pioneering. But this was pioneering, too. And I guess I'm always more interested in social sciences than in hard science. My, my favorite science fiction is social science fiction, like The Handmaid's Tale or Fahrenheit 451, and it doesn't rely on technology. So 2001, it does rely on technology. It's, it's using uh, that to to make some, you know, to explore the question, I think, of industriousness, invention, imagination, uh, how humanity evolves, uh, not just uh, biologically, but uh, through the leaps that we take uh, in time and space and, and so forth. But uh, as someone who minored in psych and has studied a lot of Freud and Jung and beyond, uh, and, and I believe in this notion of a shadow side, I believe very much in the unconscious mind. So a lot of The Shining speaks to those matters and those theories in some pretty interesting ways. You could do a compare and contrast between it and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I am not one of the people who feels like Stephen King did that the moment Nicholson comes on screen, he reads as a, as a crazy man. I, that's not my perception of the performance. And there are moments of redemption for Jack Thorne. Thank God he'd be a much less interesting character if he were pure evil the whole time. But, uh, you know, when he wakes up from the nightmare, for instance, where he, he chopped his wife and, and son into pieces, he's drooling, he's weeping. He's sobbing, and you see it dawning on him, the slide uh, of his brain uh, toward and into insanity. And once again, I started on one topic and hit on like four others. Uh, I can't even remember where we started because that's just, this is a free association-friendly film, I think. Uh, you know, oh, you, sure. You can start down one uh, row in the maze of this film. And then you take turns you didn't expect to, and then you find that one of them leads to, um, you know, a, a solid hedge without any way out, and you have to turn around. And you, yeah. And you can't escape it by going backwards in your own uh, shoe prints like Danny so cleverly does at one point. It doesn't work, not in the maze of, of the spook, not, not in the maze in our mind. I mean, that's really what this movie is. If you had to boil this movie down to something, I, you can't get away from the maze metaphor at all. Yeah. It, it really does kind of grab you and, and keep you in there. And like Paul said, he's still in the maze. After how many years of seeing this movie, it's yeah. still gotcha, you know? I never want to leave. When you first saw this movie, do you remember your initial reaction when you first saw it? I mean, you weren't the True Blue Media scholar that you are now at, that, no, at this course, point, right? right? I was 18. I had made movies for... Mm-hmm. Seven years since I was 11, I had yet to go to film school. I was only one year into into undergrad. 
They bowled me over. I think a lot of the surface things worked immediately, uh, from Nicholson's performance to the amazing use, really pioneering kind of first use uh, of um, Steadicam. And the slow pace of the movie I found extremely effective. It is creepy, which I admire because it's actually harder to sustain creepiness for extended periods of time than to have things and people constantly jumping out and making you, you know, jump in your seat. This movie does a little of that, but not much. I think it's got a more sophisticated agenda and technique, uh, including then what, what King would have done with it. Again, I don't think he King's a very good writer, and, and Kubrick is a genius filmmaker. So, I've done, granted, I didn't read the novel until after I'd seen the movie once, and so the movie was my initial experience of it. might have been different if I had gone the other way, uh, in the other order. But uh, I'm thinking particularly of the famous all-work-and-no-play reveal, where Jack's been tapping away at the typewriter for days, weeks, and Wendy finally comes upon the desk when he stopped there and sees that every sheet of paper that he typed does the same thing over and over in different arrangements. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And Duval plays it beautifully. And then what happens is Jack comes into the room from quite a distance away, very slowly. We're filming essentially over his shoulder and he's getting closer and closer, and she doesn't know he's there because she's so uh, submerged in turning these pages and, and becomes more convinced with every page of how crazy her husband has become. And finally, as he's getting closer to her, he says, uh, how do you like it? What do you think? Something like that. And then she looks up. Now, it, it creates this tension of you know wanting to scream at, at Wendy and let her know that he's coming. And that's very different from what King suggested for the scene. A scene, incidentally, that is not in the book. This is something Kubrick and Diane Johnson came up with, and it's one of the best scenes in the movie. And, and what King said is what we should have done is had the camera come closer and closer to Wendy as she's reading, and then have Jack suddenly come into frame. You know, that would be startling and jarring. And I don't know that this movie is mostly intended to startle or jar, I think it's more of a spell. This movie puts me under a spell every time, and it's a spell of, of creepiness and dread, more so than a roller coaster ride. Yeah, certainly this movie's got a few shock moments, but I wouldn't even call them jump scares. Uh, when uh -huh. Scatman Carruthers meets his end, yeah. uh, that, that's yeah. kind of shocking and jarring. It's like, wow. But you, you kind of knew something was going to happen to the guy. Uh, it was just a matter of the suspense building and building and building as he's creeping around. And I think that's where you said it's not a roller coaster. It's a haunted house. It's, it's not a roller coaster. It's a yeah. slow lingering. You kind of go through and you are forced to deal with the tension just going up and up and up instead of the roller coaster ride that you get with so many slasher movies or murder, you know, whatever you want to call them. A lot of the horror films at the time were jump scare mm -hmm. splatter films. Yeah, and that's not what this is at all. This, this no, is an exercise in tension and suspense. And I like Stephen King, not obviously more than you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
And I think that was my biggest issue with this movie for the longest time when I avoided it. It's like, well, Stephen King doesn't like it, so I'm not going <laughs> to like it either. And I, I was standing in the corner with my arms crossed, like, no, I'm not going to watch it. Because Stephen King said so. Yeah, yeah, right. But but then ask yourself, you know, you like King more than I do, but would you put him in the same echelon of fiction writers that you would put Kubrick in the in for filmmakers? Man, that's, uh, that's a tough question to answer oh, no, for me. Oh, come on, come on. It's not that tough. You may like a writer, but not consider them to be a genius. And, you know, maybe you do consider King to be a genius, but come on, Stanley Kubrick. So, anyway, we could argue about that. So, well, yeah. you know, and, and I think Stephen King has also called himself, you know, he's he's the literary equivalent of a fast food meal. I mean, and he knows that. <laughs> um, and and I, I think anybody who doesn't agree with that is kind of fooling themselves. And Stephen King has a hard time sticking the landing. A lot of his endings really just kind of, ugh. and he'll, well, find, he'll admit that yeah. too. But yeah, I found his characterizations um, often pretty shallow. And mm. yet uh, I like his premises very often, or at least up until that point where he decided that just what else have I haunted yet? I haunted a classic car. I haunted a, St. Bernard, I haunted a lodge, what else can I haunt? But Carrie is a great premise, and there's some great stuff in the premise of The Shining, sure. too, particularly that he does emphasize uh, the, the alcoholism and the incident uh, of, of child abuse. So it's in there alongside the supernatural. The supernatural is obviously much more important to King in the novel and in Dr. Sleep than it is to Kubrick. Now, some people will say, now, wait a second. At the end of the movie, Wendy's seeing this stuff, too. Yeah, she is. And what does that mean? Does that prove that the ghosts are real? I think it proves the crushing negative impact that Jack's madness is having on her. If you take it metaphorically, his ghosts are now her ghosts. Because everything dark within him ultimately is going to get visited upon her for as long as they're together. And the only way to escape um, it, 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 the ghosts and, and is to escape him. And in that sense, he is the overlook uh, because she escapes both at the same moment. Sure. Well, the reason I brought up the Stephen King thing, just to go back to that, is that even though I said, well, Stephen King doesn't like it, so I'm not going to like it. I never read The Shining until I saw the movie. <laughs> really? <laughs> I saw the movie for, yeah, I saw the movie first as well. Okay. I hadn't read all of Stephen King at that point. So I saw the movie first too. And then I went back and tried to read the book yeah. and I didn't like it as much as I thought I would. Yeah. So yeah, for me, the, the better version of The Shining is Kubrick's Shining. <laughs> you talk about sticking the landing. I'm sorry, but a boiler that needs to be regulated or it's going to blow up it's not that interesting. And burning the whole place down in an explosion is not that interesting. It's kind of cheap. I know how we'll end it. We'll have the whole thing blow up. You know, Kubrick had no interest in turning it into that kind of a spectacle. He was much more interested in the raging fire within Jack's mind and the impact it was having on his family. It definitely takes something away from the uh, the personal level of the horror that's happening in The Shining by by saying, well, you know, uh, let's just blow it all up and yeah, now we're good. You know, it it kind of takes something away from that. And I think for The Shining, for me, it works because it is such a personal haunting. It's such a personal event that's happening to these people. There aren't these external events happening. Yeah, sure, maybe it's a ghost movie, maybe it's not, maybe it's all in you know Jack's head, whatever. 
but it's still something that's so personal to them that you get stuck in that. And that's where the horror is for me. It goes back to what they're bringing, the characters are bringing to the table. It's not this external force. And that's why I don't like the blowing up boiler room either. It's this external thing happening. I like it. I prefer it to be more internal. And uh, I, I think... Man, I don't know what I think. I, <laughs> I'm kind of lost in the maze here. Um, <laughs> it's a good movie, I guess, is what I think. <laughs> I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to Paul McComas's website, which is at paulmccomas.com, but I'll also make sure there's a link to his YouTube page. You can find some of his performances there. He does some readings, some performances about John Steinbeck, and some music that he has co-written with robin lane so you can check that out paul thank you for being part of monster kid radios you know what i'm just gonna call it legacy you've been part of monster kid radio since episode 19 crazy to think about that you and i have known each other for seven plus years now i'm definitely looking forward to having you back on in the show sometime next year <laughs> thanks again paul Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thanks for tagging along this week as we close out the year that is 2020. I hope everybody enjoyed the show and had a good time talking about The Shining. Again, I know it's a little outside the wheelhouse, but, you know, it's a haunted house movie at its core. Kind of, sort of. I mean, that's one interpretation, but yeah, anyway, it was a lot of fun to revisit that movie with Paul. Again, thanks to Paul for being part of the show, and thanks to Kenny and Mark, and thanks to everybody who sent in feedback as well. You can find out everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. You can find links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Patreon, basically everything else you need to know about Monster Kid Radio, it's right there. So make sure you hop on over there. You will find links to everything that I talked about in this episode in the show notes. Also, because we are an Amazon affiliate, I'll make sure there are links that'll take you straight to Amazon if you want to pick up any of Paul's books, if you want to pick up the Ultra Q box set that Mark Matsky's working on, and basically anything else I can think of that's relevant to this week's episode, I'll make sure there are Amazon links for that as well, because if you do pick any of those things up through those links, we get a little bit of a kickback. So that'll help the show out tremendously. Although if you want to help support the show, the best thing you can do is just share the links, retweet the tweets, and let your friends know about the kind of fun that we have here every week on Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Wood Cadillacs. That is copyright The Wood Surfers. It's from their self-titled album, Wood Surfers, which you can find at woodsurfersbrazil.bandcamp.com. They gave us permission to play their music here on the show, so show them a little love, check them out, and let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name's Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next year. Ciao. <laughs>